0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the United States uh, Study Center um, live. Um, We're broadcasting from Sydney during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's my great pleasure to join you all today um, with my colleague, the non-resident senior fellow, uh, Jim Golby, who's joining us from Brussels. Jim, good to be with you.
1: Hi, it's great to be with you. Sorry for uh, some of the technical difficulties. I'm still working through a little bit. Not at all, not
0: at all. Look, it's a validation of Australia's uh, NBN, the fact that all the problems are on your side of the equation. So no hard feelings, we'll let you get set up and uh, we'll just set the scene here. So ladies and gentlemen, before we uh, begin today, um, the the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is changing the way that we live. It's changing the way uh, that the world works and it's certainly changing the United States. Um, We here at the US Study Center across all of our programs have been working on the implications of this global pandemic for Australia, for the United States, and for the way that both of our countries interact in the world across trade, innovation, the economy and foreign policy. Uh, Before we go any further though, I think it's important for us all to acknowledge And on behalf of the United States Study Center, I'd like to thank all of the frontline medical workers, be they nurses, paramedics, uh, military personnel, and the like, who are out there risking their lives and keeping all of us safe at this time of great global tragedy. Um, So in the ways that you can, uh, perhaps in the online Q&A, please acknowledge them um, uh, uh, um, as you sit here watching this webinar uh, from your living rooms around the world. We have about 130 people joining us today um, from across, uh, not just Australia, but the United States uh, and other parts of the globe. So it's a new terrain for us at the, at the US Study Center to be able to broadcast to such a wide global audience. And so we're really enjoying uh, the ability uh, to reach new audiences and to have these kinds of collaborative conversations at this difficult time. A little bit of context then before we roll into uh, today's discussion. Um, The United States is now facing or has now faced nearly 400,000 infections uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, There have been 12,000 fatalities and just overnight we've seen an increase in 25,000 more. So the pandemic over there in the United States is happening on a scale that really is uh, unprecedented for the US, but is also unprecedented for this COVID-19 pandemic as it plays out across the world in other countries. Uh, We can learn a lot from the US experience, both positive and negative, and from the way the different parts of federal state, and local governments are mobilizing to deal with this multidimensional challenge. Already and across all United States, uh, states, territories, uh, and districts, Um, the military is playing a larger and larger role. There are now 40,000 or more troops, many of them are military medical personnel, um, but many others are logisticians, are planners, are National Guardsmen, are engineers, are people that can contribute to building resilience and and sustaining health systems as they come under absolutely unimaginable strain uh, right now. So in order to discuss this uh, and to unpack some of the implications of the US military response, not just for the home front, but also for civil military relations and also for America's presence around the world. I'd like you all to again, find uh, your online virtual way of, 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 th- of helping me thank Jim Golby, uh, who is not only a non-resident senior fellow at the US Study Center, but brings nearly two decades of experience uh, as a US Army strategist uh, from his perch currently in Brussels, where he is a policy advisor to the, US, NATO, um, uh, to, 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 to the US and NATO. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Jim Golby for being here today. And I will, I will, I'll be the token for us all there. Uh, Jim. How are things out there in Brussels now we've got you online?
1: Ash, uh, they're great. Thanks so much for having me. I will do one formality up, up front. Um, I do work for the U.S. Uh, government, but none of the things I say today are the official position of U.S. government, the Department of Defense, or uh, the U.S. mission to NATO. Um, you know, things in Brussels are uh, are quite odd. Um, it is It is quite quiet. We've been on lockdown now for several weeks, and we're not quite sure when that's going to end. Jim, I think we may have uh, temporarily lost you again. Medical workers um, in, in CLAP for several minutes. Um, just in Belgium today alone, uh, more, I think 408 uh, people uh, died uh, from COVID-19. Um, so it's, it's somber. Um, but uh, there's also a big sense of unity of people sort of banding together and, and doing their best to, to get through it. Yeah,
0: I'm sure it is. And um, I, we, we did lose you briefly there in that, in that, um, uh, in, in that response. Um, but um, we were chatting yesterday, everyone, and, and Jim very sadly passed on the fact that one of the times when this crisis really came home to him was when one of his neighbors actually succumbed to COVID-19. So um, for all of you out there who are in similar situations, our sympathies are with you. And for, for, for some more than others, this is just a very, very real um, event happening all around them. G- Jim, look, let's let's turn now to talk about the policy brief that you released with the, U- U- the US Study Center last week. For those of you who haven't read it yet, fantastic policy brief, unpicking the role of the US military in responding to COVID-19 and drawing a a little bit on some of the lessons of the US military response in other pandemics and complex humanitarian crises in recent years. Uh, It's available on our website. Uh, The link is there on the screen for you all to see. I know many of you already have a copy and have submitted uh, questions based off of it, which we will turn to in the second half of this podcast. And if you haven't had the chance to do that, please feel free to use the Q&A chat box um, after we've finished uh, a little bit of a discussion ourselves uh, to work through and offer your own uh, questions up that we'll take uh, in the second half of this hour. Jim, uh, turning back now um, to, to your policy Brief, um, let's begin with a bit of a scene setter. Who in the US military uh, specifically is being mobilized uh, for, the COVID-19, uh, for the COVID-19 response?
1: Uh, well, thanks Ash. So in different ways, um, parts of all branches uh, and all components of the US military being uh, called up or touched in, in different ways, although at different scales. Um, you have uh, members of active duty forces who are specialists usually engineers, logisticians, um, some medics or doctors uh, who have been called in for very specific missions. Uh, you have reservists, uh, both individuals and units uh, who have been uh, begun to be called back in fairly large numbers uh, for reserve mobilization uh, to come back, uh, particularly in the medical field uh, to help out. But by and large, the, the much biggest group that uh, is mobilized is the National Guard in the United States. And the National Guard has a history that goes back even before um, the founding of the U.S., uh, back into the late 1600s, based on the U.S. militia system. And they're controlled uh, both by the federal government and the states, which is part of why this mobilization is is really unique um, and different than what the United States has dealt with before. Jim, Can
0: I just jump in there for a sec? Um, Folks should be able to see on the screen uh, a breakdown of uh, the different kinds of U.S. forces that are available um, uh, for Mm. this crisis and are being rolled out. But, Jim, can you just uh, explain uh, for the Australian audience what the National Guard uh, is?
1: Yes. So the the National Guard is a reserve force. Uh, It consists of about 440,000 troops. Uh, About three quarters of those are soldiers and about another 110,000 or so are airmen who can use helicopters and uh, other aviation equipment. Um, As I said before, they can be controlled either by the states or the federal governments. And the way it started in the US, at least with the COVID response, uh, was you had individual governors calling up um, their their own National Guard forces and mobilizing them on their own. There's some big downsides to that. mostly that the states have to pay for it themselves. Uh, the, their soldiers don't get the same level of benefits that they would from the federal government if they were activated. Uh, and so it puts a real drain on the states uh, to use them in that way. Uh, so what we've seen since then uh, is President Trump beginning in mid-March began first by calling up three National Guard units to what we call Title 32 duty. And this is sort of a hybrid where the units stay under the control of the governor Uh, but they are uh, then reimbursed and funded by the federal government. Uh, So it's a way that you can maintain sort of local control and be responsive to local needs while getting some of the mobilization and support of the federal government. Now, the other thing that hasn't been used too much in the COVID crisis yet, but potentially could be, is Title X activation. Uh, If National Guard members are activated under Title X, then they are fully federalized troops. They're under the control of the president as the commander-in-chief, Uh, and they answer to him. Uh, So they would not be uh, responsible to governors. At that point, they would be just like other active duty forces, which is what all of the active duty and the other reservists are under as well now.
0: And when it comes to um, making those decisions of which troops are rolled out under which jurisdictions, is there a central organizing authority? How is it coordinated? How has it been coordinated in the past?
1: Um, so it, it varies from mission to mission and depending on uh, what's necessary. As I said before, I think there's often a preference to use the Title 30, 32 authorities because they draw on the resources of the federal government while still maintaining the local control uh, without trying to have you know, uh, federal leaders or U.S. Army officials come into the state and have to figure it out. They've got people on the ground who can answer and be responsive to the local government. Uh, So that's generally the preference, preference when you're dealing with something like this. Now, what makes this really unique, though, is in the past, most of the time when we've used Title 32 authorities for something like Hurricane Katrina or Hugo or Sandy, for example, you're usually isolated in one geographic area where you're dealing with maybe one or in some cases, two or three states. And so you have a very small coordinated response that you can focus in one area. There are actually some um, agreements where states can send their own national guard troops to other states to help out and you're able to really focus your efforts. What's different now is this is hitting every state in the, in the union and it's at different levels but you're starting to see death tolls uh, in the double digits in, in almost every state. Uh, so it's, it's a, a real challenge and that's part of why we see almost half of the states already under Title 32. Another 20 have requested to come under Title 32. Um, And we're looking at federal troops coming in for these specialized uh, units. That creates lots of coordination challenges because you have both federal troops, active duty troops operating within state boundaries who answer to the president. You have National Guard troops who are answering answering to the governor um, in the same state. So they've worked out some different coordination mechanisms they have what's called a dual status commander. Uh, it's, you, you could think of it sort of like what we have with uh, the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe and NATO. It is a, a dual hatted commander. He answers both to the governor and to the president uh, and can give orders to you know his National Guard troops and his active duty troops in a sort of unified and coordinating way. And so there's been a big improvement in that. The challenge is we've never really operated in that capacity with more than two or three states at a time. So it's it's really stressing the system um, and drawing on more resources than we've ever had to do before.
0: Yeah, these really are un- uncharted waters for the domestic uh, mobilization of US forces. And look, that I think is a nice way to get us to the next part of this conversation, which is looking at the specific uh, roles and responsibilities of, um, of the US military and of, guardsmen and others that have been rolled out at home over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think many people listening might think that you know, the role here is predominantly for doctors and nurses, but of course um, it's much broader than that, isn't it, Jim?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I said before, many of the active duty and reserve troops who are coming in are specialists who are engineers or doctors or medics or nurses. Um, but that's really a very small part of the U.S. military response. That's probably in the, the four to five thousand troop range at this point. Um, when we look at the National Guard, uh, the last number I saw was uh, almost twenty-eight thousand National Guardsmen, uh, and very few of them are doctors. Very few of them are medics or even any sort of healthcare personnel. Um, what they really bring is they bring a lot of speed, capacity, and manpower, and you see them doing all sorts of different things. Um, In the report, I outline several areas, but I'll try to give some examples. The first is they can just bring a lot of supplies. Um, So, you know, there are shortages across the country in terms of um, protective equipment, masks, ventilators, tests, things that um, need to be distributed to different places. Um, So that's one thing that the military can do is bring supplies. Um, The second thing they can do is they can just bring a lot of manpower. And There are so many different things involved in the response that you just don't think of. Um, You know, with people at home, with supply chains disrupted, with problems at grocery stores. In some cases, you have National Guardsmen helping stock shelves uh, in their local grocery stores. Um, In some cases, you have them training medical personnel on the protective equipment that you get. In other cases, you have them directing traffic. um, You have them serving outside hospitals, screening personnel come in. In really bad places uh, like New York right now, um, you actually see them helping, uh, dealing with uh, the remains of of some people who have died from uh, COVID-19. So there's a wide span of things. Um, In a few places, you've actually seen the National Guard involved in some law enforcement activities and support to law enforcement activities. This was most notable in the US um, a little over a week ago uh, when in Rhode Island, they were very concerned about uh, the possibility of uh, infected per- people coming from New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, uh, and they use National Guard troops as well as some police uh, to go around and try to s- uh, search vehicles and try to um, help isolate anyone who may have been crossing uh, state state borders. That's, that's controversial, but it's not controversial that the National Guard's involved in law enforcement. They can be used really for anything. Um, it's more controversial in the fact that you have states attempting to restrict the movement of personnel across, uh, across borders within the United States. Yeah. Um, so they're doing all sorts of things. They do logistics. Uh, they can help transport lots of equipment. Um, in New York, which we'll talk about in a little bit, there's a huge construction effort um, and efforts to build the capacity of, of the hospital system and the ICU system. And we even have um, researchers in the US military who are working on vaccine development. They were very successful in doing this during Ebola, There's a long history going back through yellow fever and all sorts of other um, vaccines that the US military has helped develop. And so there, there are even teams of researchers working there.
0: Yeah, and and we wish all wish we wish all of them are, are the very best in the speediest um, uh, effort to to find a vaccine here and, and take part in that global effort. Jim, when you were speaking just then, um, there was a, sh- a picture of the U.S. Uh, one of the two U.S. hospital ships that have been deployed. Um, and maybe an interesting question here, if you can respond about the role of hospital ships is also why is there no navy in the National Guard?
1: Yeah, you know. Um... That's a great question. A lot of it goes back to, um, you know, the, the founding of the United States and uh, the uh, the founding of the Constitution as we moved from our Articles of Confederation to our Constitution. Um, there was a requirement for a militia and raising armies when times needed it, um, but the founders believed that we would always need a standing Navy and that the standing Navy would always need to be under the control of federal government because there was no sense in having a Navy that operated for individual states. With the the military or the militia at the time, they actually thought we wouldn't have much of a standing military. And so you'd be called up from time to time, and it might just be for local purposes. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, a long tradition, uh, but it, it still uh, exists to this day. That's fascinating. And, uh, and then with regards to the hospital ships,
0: um, you said that the role of the military um, in terms of patrolling the quarantines or patrolling restrictions across state territories is controversial. But the role of hospital ships has also proven a little bit controversial in the last uh, couple of days, particularly as we've seen uh, now one of the medics on, I think it was the comfort come down with COVID-19, as well as patients uh, ending up there that were supposed to be there for other reasons, also proving to have the the virus. Um, What's happening there?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, there are a few things to realize. One is that you know, these are great symbols. They are, uh, you know, these large, almost as big as aircraft carriers, uh, ships with, with large capacity that were able to be moved very quickly. Um, but as we talked about before, they're coordination problems. These are under the control of the federal government, not local states. Uh, so the governor cannot just simply direct them to do what he wants them to do. You have the Department of Defense that, um, you know, wants to keep its assets focused on the things that the Department of Defense cares about, uh, the national defense of the United States, um, and n- realizes that the, the personnel that are on those ships are not really trained um, in communicable diseases. They're trained as, in most cases as trauma specialists. Um, they're excellent at that. You know, We've had a lot of experience in the Middle East and in South Asia over the last 20 years, unfortunately, where you know, US military doctors are some of the best in the business, but they are not the best in the business when it comes to communicable, communicable diseases. So the original idea was that they would go and they would relieve capacity from hospitals um, by simply sending people who weren't dealing with COVID-19 to the hospital ships. But in practice, that gets very difficult um, because you you never know who's going to show up. Um, You have restrictions on who you can can take. And in the last uh, few days, they've broken down some of those restrictions. They've realized they might have to deal with COVID patients. Um, They're building the capacity. But that that really reduces what you can do on a ship. Um, instead of having more than a thousand beds, I think what I've heard is they're down to about 450 in terms of what they can use because you have to spread patients apart. It also makes it yeah. It, it also makes it really easy when you get on a ship, as you know we've seen with the um, USS Theodore Roosevelt. Once it gets into a ship or once it gets into a cruise liner, uh, it can it can spread very quickly. So there's some real downsides, um, but they're they're doing what they can uh, and. You know after some false starts hopefully we'll see a little bit better support uh out of those two ships
0: yeah and we'll return in a moment to talking a little bit about the um the uh implications that these multiple crises simultaneously as well as regular defense responsibilities has for for the force as a whole but before we do that let's shift to our to the next part of our conversation and talk about some current hotspots. um new york on the one hand is in the news we're all reading about it. It is the epicenter right now. Jim, what's the military doing there as we see medical personnel arrive in greater and greater numbers to assist?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, first, I think we should just point out the, the scope of the tragedy. Um, there are 140,000 people who have been diagnosed um, with COVID-19 in New York. Um, just today, uh, there were 731 deaths, bringing up the total to more than five and a half thousand um, deaths in New York alone. Um, So it's a a massive scale. You know, that's only over the course of a couple weeks. So you have military there doing all sorts of things. Um, Perhaps the most important at this point is uh, the Javits Center, which you see a picture of here. Um, So through a number of different efforts, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who are experts at building capacity really quickly, um, they came in and they cut contracts with a lot of local uh, local vendors and officials to try to build capacity very quickly. Um, then you brought in national guardsmen, which you see many of them uh, in the uh, in the pictures there, who go around and they you know do manual labor, moving beds into certain locations where they're directed to, setting up barriers between things, um, you know, putting up signs, directing people from one place to another, and just trying you know quite honestly to build enough bed space. Uh, and enough ICU space for um, for New York to deal with these challenges. Uh, so that's the most notable effort. As I said before, they're helping distribute food. They run call centers where, you know, if people are calling to ask questions about where they should get help or you report problems. They, you know, National Guardsmen will answer the phones and help direct them to resources and be a calming presence. They're helping at morgues to try to deal with just the capacity of of literally in some cases hundreds of uh, people dying a day um, and dealing with the, the transportation issues and just some really awful, awful things. Um, but they're having an, a, a major impact. I think we're uh, more than 3000 uh, National Guardsmen in New York alone, in New York City alone, uh, as well as you know, uh, hundreds if not thousands of active duty troops.
0: Yeah, and then, um, while New York is the current epicenter, um, we were chatting yesterday about another possible hotspot. Um, Many Australians are extremely familiar with the role of cruise ships in bringing the pandemic um, to our shores. And of course, a city in the United States with an extremely vulnerable population is Florida, which is also known for its cruise ships and the way that they um, may well have the, the potential to spread the pandemic and bring the pandemic to Florida and to those Asian residents um, at a much greater scale than perhaps even in New York. Um, what's happening in Florida and how is the military starting to assist
1: and prepare? Yeah, so it's um, the entire uh, Southern coast of the United States is, is a hot hotspot. Um, and I think um, Florida sort of epitomizes this, but in places like Louisiana and Georgia as well, um, I think a number of people on to the hope early on that this was a disease that would not fare very well in warmer weather. Um, And so they were more reluctant to take some of the more drastic measures that other states took earlier. Um, And as a result, we're starting to see death tolls and uh, cases climb in each of those places. Um, In Florida, you see, I I believe last I checked, um, there were almost 15,000 positive cases in Florida alone. Um, As Ash said, it's an extremely elderly population. A lot of people go down for the warmer weather uh, to try to find some place where they can uh, retire in a, a comfortable life. Um, but that leads to these unique challenges with a, a, an extremely at-risk population with the international cruise industry, with the slow response that Florida had. It's really created the potential for some big problems. Now, today, um, it's not quite at the same extreme that someplace like New York or even like Louisiana or Michigan are. Um, But we expect over the next few weeks and most of the projections have laid out that Florida is going to increase and become a hotspot. Now, in terms of the cruise ships, which you asked about, there's been a lot of controversy. Um, As we said before, state governors have a lot of authority in terms of how they respond to this. One of the reasons why Florida has responded so slowly. Uh, And the Florida governor has been very reluctant to let anyone off of the cruise ships. for fear of infections, he has recently relented and allowed at least some Florida citizens uh, to come off. But that still means that there are workers on some of the ships, um, you know, foreign travelers, other U.S. travelers who are stuck on those ships, um, and it, it potentially could turn into a, another problem like uh, we saw with the uh, the, the Princess uh, ship earlier, in uh, I believe, outside of uh, California and Washington. Yeah,
0: and um, and those. Um American citizens who have come off of those cruise ships, are they placed into self-isolation or any form of quarantine?
1: Yeah, and so th- that's you know, one of the things that um, you know, the military and the National Guard does help with. They try to help identify locations um, where you can create some capacity. So I think the standard practice for anybody coming off a cruise ship is that they go into quarantine for at least 14 days. Um, you know, they're, they're monitored, they're not always tested. But they are monitored for uh, symptoms and and, uh, checks uh, until they've gotten through that period and and are relatively sure that they're um, not carrying. Yeah, yeah. Look, Jim, let's um, switch
0: now back to looking at the military as a whole um, and whether or not the pandemic is straining the US military, both in the United States because of the multiple competing challenges that are now imposed on it, the movement of medical troops, for example, medical personnel from active duty in one area to New York City or Florida or other places. Um, but at the same time, the way that it might be straining the military abroad. And let's, let's talk first about, about the home front. Um, just how much capacity is there to keep ramping up um, the role of the military and the Guard in, in the domestic response?
1: Well, there's, there's certainly still capacity. Um, the National Guard, I think during Katrina, had about 42,000 members of the National Guard that were mobilized. Um, as I said before, we're nearing 30,000, but it's growing very rapidly. Just since yesterday, the number has increased by 5,000. So I would expect that we will reach at least the same level of National Guard troops uh, that we had in Katrina over the next few weeks, possibly even going higher than that. As I said before, the National Guard has about 440,000 troops, um, but you start ticking off you know, 20% of those or so we think are first responders, and so if you call them up for extra capacity, you're taking them away from their local communities. So in many cases, either you, uh, local governors make choices not to call them up, or they have to call up capacity and then you know, put it back into another place where they're short. Um, so there's a lot of capacity on the National Guard side still that's there, but you have other National Guard soldiers who are still involved in the Middle East, um, in South Asia, Um, and doing their normal training. So that will be disrupted in all sorts of ways. Um, As I said before, there is capacity in the active duty force, particularly for short-term crises. Um, Those have only been drawn on in specialist capabilities now. Um, But, you know, in a crisis, they could also be called on there. They just, they haven't been yet. So there is capacity, but as you use that capacity, it does pull it away from another training exercise or another mission or something else that the military would rather be doing.
0: And how about force protection um, at this time? Um, uh, I mean, I know that there's been almost uh, 1,600 cases of US military personnel coming down with COVID, some of them in National Guard. Um, What measures does the military need to take, both for those that are responding, but also for those that are trying to undertake the defense business as usual? What measures does the Pentagon um, have to take, or is the Pentagon taking, to protect the health and well-being of their troops so that they can stay prepared?
1: Yeah, and this this is a huge challenge. In some ways, this is a bigger problem than the, the resource and capacity challenge. As I said before, there's extra capacity in the National Guard. There's extra capacity, um, at least to some degree, in the active force. But when it comes to uh, you know personnel starting to get sick and starting to pass through populations, it can have a major impact on training very quickly. Um, there have been a few bright uh, bright spots in U.S. forces Korea, as well as in Vicenza, Italy. Um, we've had some commanders who've stepped up and acted very early um, to mitigate uh, these measures, either doing stand downs, um, setting up their, uh, their units in sort of protective bubbles where they knew that no one was, um, no one was contaminated or no one had COVID-19. Uh, they would break people up into smaller teams. So instead of training as a larger unit, you know, they'd break them up into two or three smaller teams so that you would minimize an outbreak if it happened. Um, so those things are happening and in many places they're working, um, but they do come at a cost, um, to training, to readiness, to presence, um, and particularly to large scale exercises, both in Europe and potentially, um, in RIMPAC, uh, in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, later this summer, which is yet to be determined, but, uh, it will be incredibly challenging to pull off. Um, the, you see the same problem. Um, on ships, as we said before, extremely difficult to deal with.
0: Yeah, I was just um, going to say, on, on the question of ships there, Jim, um, viewers on the screen can see an image of, uh, of uh, the now very famous, I don't want to call him infamous, Captain Crozier. And of course, overnight, for Australians at least, um, the COVID-19 pandemic took its first uh, casualty in the form of a high-level resignation um, in the US uh, when Acting Secretary of Navy Thomas Modley uh, stood down after his handling of the entire uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt affair or mishandling as many are, are, are uh, uh, I think, quite accurately characterizing his role there. Just what happened, uh, Jim, um, on on the Teddy Roosevelt, which is still holed up in Guam, and why is Captain Crozier's uh, uh, life changed so dramatically uh, after he wrote that letter to the
1: San Francisco uh, Tribune? Yeah, so it's, on a it's trip- been a huge... Huge controversy here, uh, as you alluded to. Um, For those who haven't followed the story closely, um, in late March, in uh, I believe around the 23rd or so of March, um, uh, Captain Crozier's crew on the USS Theodore Roosevelt um, started to uh, identify several positive uh, COVID cases. Um, This, they believe, had come from a port call in Vietnam, um, one of the rare US port calls in Vietnam uh, since the end of Vietnam War. Um, and at the time when they were in port, no one had suspected anyone of Vietnam of, of uh, carrying the disease. Um, it turned out there were uh, several Brits as, as well as some other um, you know, Vietnamese citizens who were carrying. And we believe that that's where it spread onto the ship. Um, over the course of the first couple days, they identified um, eight personnel with the disease uh, and they medevaced them off the ship. And they were trying to isolate it and make sure that they didn't come into contact with anyone. As they started to realize, though, how quickly it was spreading, um, they began to test everyone on the ship. They made sort of an early port call in Guam. um, And over the next couple days, they started taking steps uh, to try to test and identify people. Um, Captain Crozier, it really, although it rose to a civil military dispute, it started off as a military dispute. Captain Crozier, um, was in conflict with his two superior officers about uh, whether to value the health of and safety of his men or the mission. Um, and you know, this is the fundamental challenge. How do you prioritize between those two? How do you maintain mission readiness? How do you maintain presence while keeping people healthy? Um, he was not prepared to accept as much, much risk as they were. Um, he had been you know, pushing this as much as he could through the chain of command um, and then did not get a positive response. What we believe happened was he uh, penned a memo that was just over three pages, laying out the challenges, laying out several courses of action. Um, it is unclear um, exactly how it got to the San Francisco Chronicle, but he did share it with a wide number of people, some in his chain of command, some not. Um, and very quickly, it turned into a national issue. Um, initially, it looked like it was, he was going to be rewarded for taking prudent steps to try to raise this challenge. Uh, Instead, within 24 hours, he was relieved uh, by the acting secretary of the Navy. Um, The last few days have been a bit of a whirlwind, um, both from sort of insinuations that Captain Crozier uh, was dishonorable or that he was, you know, um, I forget the exact phrase, but stupid or naive, I believe, was the phrase that the acting secretary um, had used. Um, He actually, uh, Secretary Modley. Went to the uh, Theodore Roosevelt and talked over the loudspeaker to the crew um, in a, a horribly received speech um, where he, you know, sort of tried to lay out his reasoning, but it turned into a very ugly affair. He criticized Captain Crozier, he criticized the media, um, he, you know, sort of in, in many indirect ways criticized the crew for supporting um, their captain. So it went over like a, de- a lead balloon. Um, he sort of doubled down on his comments initially, but then by um, this morning in the United States, he had offered his resignation.
0: Yeah, and of course, um, all the while, Captain Crozier is in self-isolation, himself stricken with COVID-19. So this story just, um, just accelerates. And, and look, folks, we might actually revisit the issue of U.S civil relations, civilian military relations, that is um, in, a, in a future publication or event. Uh, Jim is a specialist on that particular issue. And of course the story about Captain Crozier is really just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the civil story um, during this pandemic and more broadly when it comes to the civil story in the Trump administration. Uh, look, final question and um, then we're gonna turn over to the audience for some of the questions that, that are coming in. Um, But this one, um, although it was pre-prepared, actually, it's a shout out to you, uh, Louise Collins from Westpac, um, who asked also this question about the geopolitical impacts or the geopolitical implications of COVID-19 for the Asia-Pacific, for the (laughs) Indo-Pacific, we call it here in Australia. Um, Jim, you and I have been speaking a little bit about this. Um, In particular, um, you know, in in recent weeks, we've seen the, um, the Australian, uh, the annual rotation of the US military 2500 US Marine Corps troops to Darwin uh, called off indefinitely. Um, We've also seen, as you suggested before, um, the uh, potential call off of the biggest Um, Indo-Pacific Naval Exercise RIMPAC later this year, which would bring together 25 countries, you know, thousands and thousands of troops um, working in close proximity for regional maritime security initiatives. But we've also seen lots of smaller exercises cancelled here in the region. The US Philippines uh, annual um, Balita Khan exercise has been called off. And as well, we've seen overnight, actually, that the military's own um, domestic uh, siphon of new, new boots on the ground, if you like, bringing cadets through um, basic training has been suspended. So if you put all of these things together and, and we, can, we can broaden it out a bit as well and talk about the region, um, what impact do you think this will have on America's position here in the Indo-Pacific?
1: Yeah, so I, I definitely don't think you should expect business as usual. Um, there will be a decrease in U.S. military presence, there will be a decrease in U.S. military training exercises, um, and there will probably be at least some decrease in uh, responsiveness of U.S. military forces as they try to struggle to deal with um, these outbreaks. Now, at the same time, you know the United States still has more than 200,000 troops um, at various places around the globe. They still have the capacity to respond. Um, there, there still is the ability to do wartime missions. Even Captain Crozier uh, in his in his memo had said very clearly, you know, if if we were, if we had a a threat in a wartime mission, we could carry it out, um, you know, despite these risks. But since we don't face that, we need to take care of our personnel. So um, there will be disruptions, there will be canceled training exercises. There's just really no way uh, to pull off large scale training without getting a lot of people, uh, a lot of people sick very quickly. Um, So you're going to see capacity stretch then. I think the longer term question is, what are the impacts on uh, the U.S. military budget? Uh, We've already seen conditions of austerity, you know, more or less for the last uh, 10 to 15 years. Over the last few years, there's been a bit of a buildup. um, But with a $2 trillion uh, economic rescue package potentially more on the way, uh, it's going to be very difficult with the U.S. Uh, deficit and the U.S. Um, national debt to continue spending and increasing on, on the amount of U.S. troops. So there are going to be long-term implications, not just over the, ne- the course of this next summer, 18 months, uh, but over the long term to U.S. budgets and U.S. strategy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, just to offer my two cents on that, folks, Jim, as we were saying yesterday, um, you know, at the, at the U.S. Study Center, um, the Foreign Policy and Defense Program has done a lot of work on uh, the U.S. military position and the role of the budget in sustaining that position in the region, even before COVID-19 hit the United States a um, couple, couple of weeks ago uh, in a big way, we already had the Defense Secretary, uh, Mark Esper, saying that, hey, we need to live um, with the new reality of flatlined budgets or decreases in annual budgets for the foreseeable future, even as the U.S. shifts um, to a posture of great power competition, where it really does have major demands in modernizing its military, so um, this pandemic really couldn't come. Probably, it's fair to say, the worst time um, for the U.S. military when it looks at its own fiscal constraints, it looks at the requirements of a force coming out of two decades of war in the Middle East, and it tries to realign that strategy resource. Uh, mismatch so that's an issue that we'll be closely watching and for all of you listening and watching out there uh, stay tuned for the study center um, in the coming weeks for more research on that look turning now to questions and they're flowing in thick and fast um, i'm going to try and group some of these together and jim a lot of people are really interested um, in the comparison between what's happening now in the united states and what's happened previously in terms of the US response um, to the Ebola crisis in Liberia in 2014. Um, We've had this question from one of our own at Sydney University, uh, Dr. Adam Cameron Scott, who is actually also an advisor to Australia's, um, uh, Australian government's pandemic response team right now. We've also had a similar question uh, from Jim Rogers, um, who again is asking from the perspective, more of the US military, um, what is the role, uh, or how has he put it here? Can we offer any insight into how Northcom or other domestic commands and controls might be more ready for this type kind of challenge out of the gate than they were for the Ebola response back in 2014? So put simply, um, is the US military better prepared worse prepared for Ebola, even leaving aside the question of whether there's capacity to do um, foreign uh, assistance missions right now?
1: Yeah, so um, I think it's a little both. I I feel more comfortable um, that with respect to the homeland, the U.S. military is better prepared. Uh, Northcom has responsibility for homeland defense as well as sort of domestic disaster response. Um, There is an army headquarters set up in Um, in Texas and San Antonio, uh, Army North, which is responsible for coordinating a lot of the the logistics on the U.S. military side. There's a civil support organization that's permanently headquartered in Virginia that works with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Health and Human Services, that have developed these relationships to coordinate. Now, as I said, it's still a bigger challenge um, than the U.S. has ever seen in terms of the scale of the domestic response across the United States, um, it will dwarf what we had in Ebola. I think you know, at the, the peak, we came close to about 3,000 troops. As yeah. I said before, we're, we're over 30,000 on the domestic response now. So I think we're, better, we're better, repa- or sorry, better prepared, but it's also a much bigger challenge. In terms of what we're doing and, and how it's similar or different, um, in Ebola, I think there was even less uh, direct medical care provided by the US military. Um, we sent you know, a task force over that did a lot of construction and logistics, providing equipment and personnel, um, basically set up secure um, uncontaminated areas and set up capacity uh, for training so that they could train local personnel and international personnel to actually go out uh, and treat uh, people who were stricken with Ebola but very few US soldiers even came into contact with anyone with the disease. I think what's inevitable in this US response is that there will be National Guard members, there will be um, you know, local police, there will be army and navy soldiers who come down with the disease um, in a way that we just didn't see uh, in the Ebola response
0: yeah and that's um i think an issue that we'll be watching very closely here from australia when it comes to how the pandemic might play out in vulnerable societies um, in the pacific and what the us calls the south pacific countries like png fiji vanuatu and others with very vulnerable um, health systems very vulnerable populations low life expectancies in many instances under normal circumstances what might that mean? We don't know. I'm not asking you to, to, to offer a response here, Jim, but you know, it's, it's something that we need to watch. What might that mean for Australia in taking the lead um, as we have in regional uh, humanitarian assistance missions, um, as we did in the Solomons, again, with a something scale of this pandemic in an environment where US capacity uh, to assist or at least assist directly is probably more stretched than it was in the past.
1: Yes, I think absolutely. And it's not just that capacity is stretched, it's that the key capacity, the the people who are best able to deal with this challenge um, will be the people who are already engaged in the response in the United States. Um, And regardless of whether you have America first policies or not, um, Americans will prioritize taking care of um, Americans suffering from the disease over uh, foreign response. I I do think over time, depending on how um, social distancing and some of the measures we have uh, play out, there may be additional capacity as the year goes on but we're already seeing the U.S. you know go th- very quickly through stockpiles of uh, protective equipment, of tests, and so there may be some technical expertise, but there just won't simply be a lot of extra supplies that we could uh, you know provide on a moment's notice like we might have been able to in the past.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And look, just a follow up to that, um, which I completely agree with. I mean, the the the, the fact that those that are most implicated in responding to this crisis globally, not just in the US military, are doctors, are medical, are, are medical personnel, are nurses, and the like. Um, and they are often more expensive and in fewer quantities in, in, in any agency outside of a hospital, um, for that matter. Um, they are the ones that are going to be strained. So will this lead to changes um, in the way that we think about um, not so much the role of the military, although that, that's an interesting thing to explore, but the way that we think of the composition of the military. Um, if supply chains are being criticised right now for being just in time, um, might we see criticism of the US military or of other militaries for having just enough when it comes to medical personnel, many of whom, as you said earlier, have a day job in a civilian hospital and can't easily be deployed in a major crisis? Do You think that thinking might come?
1: Yeah, I I think it almost inevitably will. Um, You know, once the crisis dies down, it can uh, uh, very quickly shift um, and people will turn their attention. But there's already talk about, um, you know, a desire to build more hospital ships. Uh, There's already a desire to look at our response capacity for pandemics in the future. Um, Even before uh, the pandemics uh, struck, there was already sort of an isolationist um, and a sort of... uh, economically centric, US centric uh, focus that was bubbling up in um, the Republican Party and in some parts of the Democratic Party that we're looking at how do we protect our supply chains? How do we increase domestic industrial production? This will provide more sort of firepower to those people in domestic debates, you know, whether that will get them to actually be able to allocate the resources they need as resources decline um, is another story. But there certainly will be Uh, arguments that we need to focus on those types of things in the wake of uh, this response.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, just a bracket here, folks. Um, We're going to run until 10 past the hour as we got started a little late. I can see we've still got, we've lost three in the course of this hour so far. So the rate of attrition is, is pretty favorable at the moment. We'll continue on unless I see a mass drop off uh, for those of you watching online. Um, Jim, we have a question from James Lamb that picks up of the last point uh, where he's asking, might there be opportunities for more um, collaboration between the US and Australia um, when it comes to hospital ships? And just a point of information here, Australia doesn't have a hospital ships in the way that the US does. Of course, we have medical facilities on board some of our LHDs, for example, that can provide humanitarian relief. Um, But just thinking about the top the question broadly, Jim, can you foresee um, a situation where um, even with strained capacity in both countries, there can be cooperation in creatively thinking about, let's say, cruise liners that are not sailing around the Caribbean, being filled with doctors and, and mini, military medical personnel that might have some spare capacity and used in, in places where this crisis really might have a negative and terrible effect?
1: Yeah, so a, as someone who is, is not an engineer nor a medical specialist, um, I, I can't talk to repurposing um, cruise liners or, or whether that's feasible or not. Um, I think there are probably some, um, some difficulties you'd have to come over, but in terms of cooperation, um, I think there will yeah. definitely be um, you know, a an opportunity um, to seize on greater cooperation, you know, as you laid out in your great report um, a few months ago, um, the U.S. will have less capacity, will be under strained budgets. Um, it's really a question of, you know, sort of domestic politics in the United States at this point. And um, the administration and the approach that they, they choose to use going forward in terms of international cooperation will have a big impact on that. But I think there, there will be a huge opportunity as the United States looks and says, hey, there were a lot of places where we only had enough capacity for ourselves, um, where if we could have worked with others, we would have been more effective, or where if others had a similar capacity, um, you know, they could have been more self reliant, you know, even from an Australian perspective, you might look at it and say, if we can't count on the United States, maybe we need to have this capacity if we want to deal with you know, other um, crises in, in our neighborhood. Um, so I, I certainly think there's an opportunity. Again, it's a, a an open question whether um, the window will will actually, you know, be jumped through and that we'll be able to seize that um, because I think there are a lot of domestic political challenges that are not gonna be resolved till after a presidential election this fall.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and I think that's gonna be a theme coming out of this. Um, COVID-19 and the international and US response is gonna accelerate many of the trends that we've already been appreciating in the US role in the world, in the role of new rising powers in a multipolar Indo-Pacific, um, of the role of China in terms of its, its approach to um, uh, quarantining an entire province, to spare up capacity in the rest of the country, to try and surge its influence in the region, and so on and so forth. All of these trends were already there. We've already been reading and writing about them, uh, but they're going to be accelerating often in uneven ways over the coming over the coming weeks. Jim, two more questions. The first one's a double barrelled one, and then we'll wrap up. Um, we've got um, both sides of the ledger coming through in the Q&A. On the one hand, we have Michaela Ryan, who's interested to know um, whether um, the US military is still able at this time uh, to sufficiently watch out for what adversaries are doing. And the flip side of that is we have, um, uh, it's Kevin, um, excuse me if I get this wrong, Kevin Lanam from the US Marine Corps, who's asking, whether or not this provides, um, COVID-19 rather, provides an opportunity for US allies and partners uh, to exploit, if you like, the um, disadvantages and situation that its adversaries might face itself in. So is this an opportunity for the US and its partners to prosecute some of their international objectives? And on the flip side, are they not even able to undertake their defense business as usual?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. Um, I do think that there are you know, opportunities and challenges arising every day. Um, and the, the, the short answer I would give up front is that there is so much focus right now in the United States on the response um, that even though the Department of Defense has lots of capacity, you do draw away senior leader attention that otherwise would be able to focus on sort of these broader strategic issues. And so th- this doesn't take away anything from them, but when you see, you know, we've just had a secretary change in the in the Navy, um, we've seen lots of challenges, lots of focus uh, on the homeland. It will be difficult to get enough senior leader attention to really seize opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I think there are, you know, at least in the information space, uh, in thinking about how to confront you know, Chinese narratives that have been coming out um, in, you know, potentially um, more nuanced ways than we've probably been doing to date, Um, but to really, you know, highlight some of the challenges they had with the response, some of the responsibility that they bear, um, I certainly think there's opportunity there. On the intelligence um, and threat side, uh, I think we're probably in a slightly better position than, um, and we won't need to be quite as reactive I think, um, in many ways, intelligence agencies, while disrupted in some ways, um, will still have a lot of capacity, they'll still continue to operate, they'll still continue to monitor uh, trends, um, will have some eyes and ears, they'll just be slightly degraded. But I think that'll be true of, of lots of people. The flip side of this, um, and you know, I'm not a China specialist, but the, the flip side will really be, you know, what does this look like for China over the long term? Right now it looks pretty good. Um, It looks like they have managed to get uh, the crisis under control in the short term, Uh, but there's a lot of questions about the reliability of their numbers. There's a lot of questions about just how big of an impact this has actually had. There's a lot of questions about where their focus truly is. Um, And there are a lot of questions about what measures they're going to have to take if they really want to keep uh, this under wraps. So I think the, the good thing is that any challenges that come up for the United States, or any opportunities we might miss, don't necessarily create obvious openings um, for China unless they want to ex- accept a really extreme amount of risk.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. And like, like you said, the um, when it comes to China, we, we, we're only beginning to learn what actually took place in the opening months of this year in Wuhan and in other parts of the country. And as we've seen in the last week with Singapore, a country that many people were pointing to as an example of how you deal with a pandemic effectively and with all the tools at your disposal uh for for for, for a government that is techn- as technologically savvy as singapore is they're now fighting the, the spike, the second spike the second wave that people talk about um of course neither you or i are experts in this field but it doesn't take an expert to um to predict that in fact this is gonna be China's situation at some point, whether or not they reveal that to us uh, in, the coming, in the coming weeks and months, and may well be the case for all of our countries. So a sobering thought there, Jim. Uh, look, I wanna leave you on another sobering question, but I, I think uh, potentially with a more optimistic answer uh, from one of our own, Brendan Thomas Noon at the US Study Center, who is asking, um, what are the implications for morale right now in the National Guard and in active duty forces in responding to this pandemic?
1: Yeah, so I think um, right now there are some challenges. Uh, In the National Guard, as I said before, there's uh, some coordination issues that you work with when you're mobilizing federal and state troops. Um, One of the challenges they have now is that they were activated on 30-day orders, which um, sounds like a trivial thing. One day short, um, right? (laughs) One day short. Um, And so if you can get a 31-day or longer order, then you get a housing allowance, which is substantially more money, you get access to um, federal health care under the military system, um, and it opens up a number of other benefits in terms of education and things. So I think there's some grumbling and frustration there. Um, as always, when you are very quickly called on to do a, a mission that you're not necessarily trained to do, um, but that you have you know, the organization and manpower to do it, there's a lot of chaos at the ground level. Um, people who you know, show up to work one day, and they end up waiting for four or five hours, then are asked to do something quickly. So I think the initial stages will be very frustrating um, for National Guardsmen. Um, I think we're starting to see some of that turn the corner. Um, there are rumors that they're going to switch to 45-day orders, which would open up uh, some yep. of the the benefits. Um, the coordination will improve over time. Um, and so I think that's, that's more optimistic. There's also, also the good news story that America will see its National Guard, sort of its frontline response, right. doing many amazing things. I mean, when you look at the sheer volume of, you know, turning the convention center in New York City into thousands, you know, more than a thousand beds in just a couple of weeks, uh, or sorry, really days. Eight, really, Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah uh, just, just barely over a week. Um, it's just really amazing. And so I think there will be some, um, some well-deserved respect for them as well. Um, the Navy will face real challenges right now. Um, I think with the leadership change, with um, you know going through you know not just this challenge with Captain Crozier, but challenges they've had over the last uh, three years, really in terms of safety uh, and reporting procedures. Um, there's some challenges, but the good news is I think um, you know you saw you know leaders uh, take responsibility. You saw a resignation, and so there's the opportunity in both cases for after, um, you know, after some early mistakes to see some real progress. Um, you know, the Army and the Air Force, um, I think while touched in different ways have probably had slightly better responses. The Air Force is a little, uh, in a little better situation because they're so much more technical. They don't have to be crammed into large spaces. Often you have a, you know, a crew of two people in your aircraft yeah. or you know, um, smaller numbers. So you, they're a little protected in those ways. The Army, um, Largely because of the U.S. forces in South Korea was a little bit ahead of the curve, so Mm -hmm. there will be there will be frustrations and challenges. But I do think um, they're starting to learn, they're starting to adapt, um, and that you know the U.S. military is going to you know come out in a better place than we are today. um, You know, with more confidence um, among you know local communities and the National Guard, um, with you know resilience and how how we can operate in sort of degraded environments with you know, poor communication and decentralized leadership. There can be some positives out of this. It's oh, just, yeah. we'll have to, you know, suffer through the growing pains first.
0: Yeah, but and look at the end of the day, uh, though, is it, would it be fair to say that the US military is still and has remained for some time uh, through this administration, the most trusted institution in the United States. Folks seeing the American uniformed personnel out there in different roles alongside health workers, which, you know, are still receiving every night 7 p.m., the applause of New York City and other cities around the country, around the globe, frankly, for their yeah. role in this fight. As you say, once we move out of the eye of the storm, uh, that bond between um, civilian society relations, sorry, military society relations will actually uh, be be something that lasts.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's a hope. I actually wrote an op-ed on this, uh, I think about two weeks ago, um, you know, saying thank them for their service, because one of the things we've heard in the U.S. for the last two decades is thank you for your service to anybody in uniform. And yeah. you know, that's a, a very, welcome, um, you know, very welcome response to those of us in uniform, but there are a lot of other people that we're seeing who serve in so many other ways, that's doctors, right. nurses. I mean, even now garbage men that you don't realize you depend on every day, you know, yeah. who come and you know, pick, up, pick up your trash. Uh, people who stock grocery sal- shelves, people who you know, do all these things that it takes to keep a society functioning. I think there's a growing appreciation here in Belgium, for sure, and I think in in certain parts of the United States um, that are touched by this as well. So there there is a hope that we can come out of this with some more unity, some more appreciation, that there are a whole lot of people who serve in lots of different ways. And um, I think there is an opportunity in a very polarized society, um, despite lots of challenges in our politics today, that people will look to each other and hopefully trust each other um, in difficult situations a little bit more yeah
0: and look let's let's all hope for that and i think jim that's a great way to end a fantastic podcast um thank you very much for your time everyone out there let's please remember the role of all of those on the front line of this crisis let's thank them and make their lives easier wherever we can wash your hands stay at home and uh keep reading the work coming out of the u.s study center uh thanks for joining us today i'm ashley townsend i'm meeting with jim Golby, uh both of us from the u.s study center and we look forward to connecting with you again soon
1: Thanks so much. Thanks, Jim.